This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Ben McIntyre is an award-winning author, historian and columnist for The Times newspaper. Over the course of a dozen historical biographies, he has uncovered some of the most fascinating and entertaining true spy stories of the 20th century. From double agents operating during World War II to legendary Cold War spies such as Kim Philby and Oleg Gordievsky, Ben's research has given him access to some of the most closely guarded secrets of espionage history. His outstanding biography of Operation Mincemeat, a daring and outlandish scheme to misdirect the Nazis in 1943, was adapted into a feature film earlier this year. But Ben isn't one to rest on his laurels. And his latest book explores another remarkable corner of World War II operations. Kolditz, Prisoners of the Castle, an epic story of survival and escape from the Nazis' fortress prison, shines new light on one of the greatest war stories ever told. And what's more, as with many of his previous books, Ben narrates the audiobook version himself. The myth of Kolditz has stood unchanged and unchallenged for more than 70 years. Prisoners of war, with moustaches firmly set on stiff upper lips, defying the Nazis by tunnelling out of a grim Gothic castle on a German hilltop, fighting the war by other means. Yet, like all legends, that tale contains only a part of the truth. The soldier prisoners of Kolditz were courageous, resilient and astonishingly imaginative in the ways they tried to get out of the high-security camp holding the most troublesome captives of the Third Reich. There were more attempted escapes from Kolditz than any other camp. But life in Kolditz was about more than escaping, just as its inmates were more complicated and far more interesting than the cardboard saints depicted in popular culture. Kolditz was a miniature replica of pre-war society, only stranger. It was a close-knit community intensely divided over issues of class, politics, sexuality and race. In addition to the resolute warriors, the participants in the Kolditz drama included communists, scientists, homosexuals, women, aesthetes and philistines, aristocrats, spies, workers, poets and traitors. Many of these have hitherto been excluded from history because they did not fit the traditional mould of the white male allied officer dedicated to escaping. Moreover, roughly half the population of Kolditz was German. The guards and their officers have also tended to be painted in one uniform colour. Yet this group also contained a rich cast of characters, including some men of culture and humanity far removed from the brutal Nazi stereotype. The inside story of Kolditz is a tale of the indomitable human spirit and much else besides. Bullying, espionage, boredom, insanity, tragedy, 
and farce. Ben McIntyre, welcome to My Life in Books. A pleasure. Thank you for having me, Ray. You begin by pointing out that Colditz is a medieval castle that has a history that goes back much further than World War II, but it was always a statement of power and a prison to those living inside. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, you know, we think of Colditz because we see it through the Second World War prism, but actually, from the 11th century onwards, th- this was a massive statement of overweening local power. And it was, was largely built by the electors of Saxony, the kind of local potentates. And it, and it serves various purposes. One, it, it sits on this hillside looming over the town of Colditz and the valley beyond. And it's meant to inspire fear, respect, awe, But it was also used by the electors to lock up people that were troublesome. And that's not just sort of prisoners. It was sort of also members of their own families and so on. So it's for nearly a millennium, really. Colditz was used to house kind of unwanted people. And that included uh, people with mental health problems. Latterly, I mean, in the early part of the appalling Nazi uh, experiment. Um, people with various disabilities were put there. It became a prison camp um, during that time. But it had always had this very sort of grim dual history. It, it's an odd place called it because actually, in a way, it's rather beautiful. I mean, we have this image of this sort of lowering grey castle on the horizon, but actually, it, it's an astonishing piece of architecture. And in some ways, in the right light, it's now been painted sort of a much lighter colour. It's actually very beautiful. And because it is so isolated and seemingly inescapable, it was the perfect place to lock up the most troublesome Allied officer POWs at the beginning of the Second World War. Well, so the Germans believed. I mean, that is, again, one of the ironies of Colditz, is that, yes, it was selected because it perches on this rock. It's got an incredibly sort of vast fortifications. But actually, as one of the more astute German officers in Colditz observed, it's actually a very difficult place to make secure because because it's thousand-year history, it's riddled with holes, old cupboards, bits of loose wiring, corners that you can get through, old tunnels, really complicated sewage operation. And as you say, the sort of the most Deutschfeindlich, which was the German word, the most German unfriendly prisoners were housed there and the idea that they would somehow be kept completely secure there. But actually, it became very quickly a place that the prisoners believed they could get out of. Now, as the war progressed, security improved and it became harder and harder to get out. But certainly in its initial few months, as this German officer said, it was riddled with holes. Um, So in fact, it presented opportunities. And that's certainly the perception that we get from the Colditz story written by Pat Reed, which really has become the accepted narrative for the last 70 years, especially British prisoners trying to break out through dusty tunnels and hidden walkways. That's exactly right. I mean, Colditz has become part of our language. You know, if you refer to somewhere as, gosh, it's a Colditz there, you know, we know exactly what that means. And it has become part of the national mythology. It's a story we've inherited in black and white, moral black and white, as well as black and white television series, that is about brave men with British moustaches defying the Germans and digging their way out. So in a way, sort of continuing the war by other means. And of course, like all legends, that is partly true. There was a great deal of that going on. 
But actually what fascinated me about Colditz is that there's a very different story and a much more complicated and in a way a much more interesting story taking place inside Colditz because the prisoners really recreated the world they had known outside inside this kind of artificial stone box, really. And they were more or less completely cut off from the outside world. And what you find is that a very particular sort of society emerged in Colditz with its own rules, even its own language, its own hierarchy, highly stratified, highly self-disciplined in some ways. But we sort of imagine, in a way, because of the Pat Reed story, who was the great sort of publicist of Colditz, if you like. He wrote three books about Colditz and authorised the board game, which I grew up playing well, as a too. boy. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it was a great game. It's um, Although I got it again during lockdown and forced my children to play it. It's best if you're the commandant, I've discovered. It's, <laughs> it's quite tough if you're a lowly Dutch single prisoner trying to get out. But, you know, so we grew up on that story and it's, um, you know, it's a very inspiring, it's a very worthy story. But it's a very one-dimensional story, the one that Pat Reed told. And it's about sort of cheerful chaps doing the right thing. Of course, Humans don't always do the right thing. Humans are very unpredictable. And one of the things that I found so fascinating about writing this book is that it asked me, and I hope it will ask readers, what would you do? How would you have responded to this astonishing situation where you are an innocent captive? You've done nothing wrong, and yet the future is completely unpredictable. You have no idea how long you are going to be incarcerated in this place. How do you respond? And they did not all respond in the same way. They certainly didn't all respond the way that Pat Reed responded, which was to kind of immediately try to get out. I mean, everyone was sort of involved to some extent in the escape planning and the escape preparations and so on, but not everybody wanted to get out. Some were, if not content, were at least prepared to kind of hunker down and stay put. And and within those two sort of extremes, if you like, you had all sorts of different sorts of human behaviour. Yeah, and at least until 1943, it was a, a very international prison. Three of the first prisoners were Canadian airmen, you had French, you had Poles, you had Dutch. And in some ways, they all seem to have reverted to national type. The British, because so many of them had been to boarding school, seemed to treat it a bit like Eton and Harrow, <laughs> and you were there to rag the captors, many of whom actually were school teachers. Perhaps one of the calmest characters is the German security officer, Eggers, who was a school teacher in peacetime, and I think who comes across as rather relishing looking after all these naughty schoolboys <laughs> under his command and trying to make sure that they all keep inside the gates. Yeah. I mean, Eggers is one of my favourite characters and he wrote a, a, a sort of memoir after the war, which is just absolutely fascinating because Eggers was a strange combination of things. I mean, he was a German soldier, but he was not a Nazi. In fact, he rather disavowed any of that sort of stuff in private. He'd been a school teacher before the war. He was an Anglophile. He'd actually taught in a school in Cheltenham for a year. So he had a very rosy view of British people. In fact, one of the funnier things about his memoir is that he could never quite get over the fact that the people of Cheltenham had been so polite and nice to him uh, in the early 1930s, but the prisoners in Colditz were consistently rude to him. And he couldn't quite work out whether why, why it was that the Brits have, in one place had been so polite and in so rude in another. Um, and he was, uh, but he was extraordinary, Eggers, because he was a very good 
school teacher and he did regard his captives as if they were, as you say, sort of naughty schoolboys who needed to be kept in line. He, he deeply disapproved of using any violence against them. On the other hand, he was also a professional and he was the one who was responsible really for tightening security in Colditz. And he did so in, uh, without being too stereotypical, I, I hope, a sort of rather Teutonic way. He approached the whole thing as if it was a sort of problem of logic. And every time an escape took place, he would then take security measures to sort of block the hole, if you like. And he even set up what he called the Colditz Museum inside the castle, which was packed with artefacts that he had confiscated from escaping prisoners, counterfeit money, badminton rackets with hollow handles that had been used to smuggle in contraband, that, that kind of thing. And he even persuaded escapers who had failed to escape to reenact their escapes. So he created an astonishing photographic record of life inside Colditz. And that has been fantastically useful to me because, in fact, I was sent by the grandson of one of the prisoners, Eggers's own scrapbook, which is an astonishing document. It's, it's a very large leather-bound book that contains all of Eggers's photographs, many of which are reproduced in the book, and his own handwritten commentary alongside it, half of it in English, half of it in German. And it's just an astonishing document because you get this insight into a kind of a character very different from the sort of brutal, Nazi, idiotic prison camp commander that we've sort of inherited from history. Eggers was of a different stamp. And, you know, he, he paid a price. I mean, Eggers after the war, was arrested by the Soviets because the Colditz was in the eastern part and, in fact, would end up spending far longer in prison than any of the Colditz prisoners. Yes, it's a horrible irony, that. And pitted against Eggers, you had some of the most ingenious escapist minds. The French built an extraordinary 44-metre tunnel called the Metro that very nearly worked. And the British established a Department of the Secret Service, MI9, to smuggle contraband into, well, not just Colditz, into all POW camps, developed maps and tiny compasses, and were also getting information out from POWs within the camp. And you paint a wonderful picture of a real-life cue from James Bond an eccentric inventor. This is one of my favourite characters. Clayton Hutton was his name, and known as Clutty. And he was one of those people that only war would have found a job for. He was ingenious. He was a sort of failed scientist. He was a failed pretty much everything until the war came along. But he was extraordinary, and he was responsible for inventing escape kit, really, for both prisoners who'd been shot down or, or otherwise captured in occupied Europe, but also for people inside the prison camps. And the variety of these was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, Clutty is one of the great unsung heroes of the Second World War. He was completely bonkers, apart from anything else. But he produced, I mean, thousands, for example, of, of tiny maps that could be hidden in a boot heel or, or smuggled into Colditz inside board games. He, he used this extraordinary mind of his to dream up a whole variety of different things. I mean... As you said at the beginning of that part, 
the, the odd thing about Colditz was that it did produce these strange minds. And that's partly because the Germans believed that if they locked up all the most troublesome prisoners together, that somehow they would be easier to control. The, precisely the reverse was true. If you put all the naughtiest people in one school into one class, they club together, they work against you, and very soon your classroom is on fire. And, and that is kind of more or less what happened in Colditz, is that it created this extraordinary atmosphere of escapology, including a sort of bureaucracy to back it up. So you had an escape committee, you had oversight, you had different escape committees liaising with other nations' escape committees. It was really was escaping on an almost industrial scale, and everybody who could contribute to it did. But, but the way that they managed to get this contraband into Colditz is one of the most extraordinary stories, really, because... You mentioned Le Metro, the great long French tunnel that was built. Well, in order to build a tunnel like that, you, you need equipment. And it was the French who really worked out how to do this. Parcels sent by both the Red Cross and by family arrived in the parcels office in Colditz, which was a very securely locked room on the ground floor on the inner courtyard. Now, what the French managed to do was not just to pick the lock of the parcels office, but to recreate a very complicated cruciform key that meant they could not only break in, they could break out again and lock the door and nobody would know they'd been in there. So what they did, and they passed this secret eventually on to the, to the Brits, was they would break into the parcels office at night as soon as parcels had been delivered, remove whatever contraband was inside them before the Germans had been able to x-ray the parcels or search them or find out what was inside, and then either replace the items with something else or simply remove them. And, and what they managed to smuggle in was quite extraordinary. I mean, they smuggled in not just stuff for digging a tunnel, but parts for an entire radio and a generator, all of which were sort of smuggled in inside things like tins of ham and other receptacles that stuff could be hidden on. So there was this extraordinary game of cat and mouse between the Germans and the prisoners. The prisoners being able to smuggle in ever more complicated things from people like Clutty, and the Germans doing their very best to find them, confiscate them, and then, in the case of Eggers, display them in his own museum. So, you know, the, the great ingenuity went into it. And I sort of feel Clutty is one of those people who deserves some sort of honour. He, he sort of tried to publish his sort of batty memoirs after the war, and uh, MI9, the escape section, was part of the kind of military intelligence system. MI6 said, there is no way you're publishing this, and sort of shut him down. So he's never really had the kind of reputation that he deserves. And he really was a sort of real-life cue. Yeah, and you mentioned this is on an industrial scale, and he approached Waddington's, the makers of the board game Monopoly, and persuaded them to smuggle real money into POW camps and went to a company called Blunts and they changed some of their production in order to produce micro compasses that could be hidden inside buttons and chess pieces. It took an extraordinary mind to think in that kind of way. It really did. And the other thing that the Colditz prisoners was able, were able to do was to order specific items that they needed, believe it or not, because what I had never known before I started researching this was that there was a kind of espionage operation within Colditz because there's a particular character, again, who's never really been given credit, who was a dentist called Julius Green, one of my favourite characters, who was not just an extremely good dentist, he was a spy. And he was largely responsible for sending the coded letters from 
colditz that would be sent to various addresses, often to his family, which would then be passed on to MI9, decoded. And very often these contained a kind of shopping list of the things that they needed inside the castle to try to get out. So you had this extraordinary situation where MI9, the intelligence officers back in London, could write to people secretly in Colditz, and people in Colditz could secretly write back. And I reproduced the code they used, in, I mean, it was incredibly complicated. Uh, I, I reproduce it in the back of the book, and it was never broken by the Germans. They never realised quite how much information was being secretly passed back and forth. Well, as we can hear, what makes your book so incredibly readable is not just your painstaking research, but also that they're really character-driven. And after the break, we are going to meet one of the most flamboyant characters of Second World War espionage history. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This episode, I'm in conversation with historian and espionage expert, Ben McIntyre. Ben, your real breakthrough came with Agent Zigzag, a portrait of a double, if not triple, agent in the Second World War. I feel rather indebted to old Eddie Chapman, um, who was uh, Agent Zigzag. He was a tremendous rogue, really. He was a terrible crook. He was a safe cracker and a blackmailer and all sorts of terrible things, really. But he turned out to be, he was used by the Brits as one of the most effective double agents, not just of the Second World War, but of history, really. And he was a very bad man who contrived during the war to do some very brave and remarkable things. He was, a, as I said, he was a sort of professional criminal who happened to be in prison in Jersey when the Germans invaded the Channel Islands. And he struck a deal uh, with the invading German authorities. He said, I will spy for Germany if you drop me back into Britain. And there's no way I'm going to be a danger to you because I'm facing such a long time in prison in Britain that I'll never defect to the other side. And sure enough, they trained him up in a special spy school in southern France parachuted him into Cambridgeshire in 1941. He landed, hit the ground, broke his nose, and immediately defected to MI5, who then redeployed him as a double agent against the Germans. Now, the reason they called him Agent Zigzag was because they were never absolutely sure whose side Eddie Chapman was really on. And that's what made him, to me, such a fascinating character, because he was a real born opportunist. And I suspect if the Germans had won the war, Eddie Chapman might have been perfectly happy with concealing that he'd worked for the Brits throughout the whole thing and uh, you know, lived a very happy life. So, no, he was a, he was a born criminal. I don't want to give the story away because it's such an extraordinary one, but he, he's the only agent who went back into occupied Europe. In addition to his many other vices, Eddie Chapman was astonishingly brave and insouciant in a way that I found very attractive. He found the whole thing to be hilarious. And at one point, he was at the situation where he had one girlfriend in Britain who was being looked after and paid for by MI5 and another one in occupied Norway that was being looked after by the German military intelligence. So he he basically got the 
intelligence services of both sides to bankroll his extremely flamboyant, you know, romantic and emotional life. Now, of course, he wasn't the only double agent of the Second World War. In your book, Double Cross, you detail the five remarkably flamboyant spies who helped turn the course of D-Day. Could you give us brief portraits of the five of them? Well, these were an extraordinary bunch as well. I've never been quite sure if espionage attracts people who are slightly mad or whether it makes people slightly mad as a result of kind of what it is. But the five agents you're referring to were all double agents. They went by the code names Brutus, Bronx, Treasure, Tricycle and Garbo. And they performed very different things, and they would be have been unable to do it if, largely thanks to Bletchley Park, MI5 had not been able to basically button up the entire German intelligence network inside Britain. The Germans believed they had a functioning espionage operation going in this country during the war. The truth is that the intelligence services here had been able to anticipate the arrival of every single spy who turned up in Britain, bar one. And they they picked them up, they either executed them or they persuaded them to operate as double agents against the Germans, or they pretended that they were still operating as agents for Germany. It's a kind of complicated thing to haul on. But in fact, one of the one of the best ways of running a double agent is to intercept an agent, find out how they are communicating with their controllers, and then pretend that you are them sending information back. Um, so they the, the five of these characters, and they, they were an extraordinary variety. One, Garbo, probably the most famous of all, was Juan Pujol, who was a sort of failed Spanish chicken farmer who ended up operating from a safe house in Hendon, not only reporting back to the Germans as if he was operating on their behalf, but creating an entire network of sub-agents, 23 in all, who did not exist. These were not people in any sense of the word. They were just imagined by Garbo and his handlers. And the Germans believed that Garbo was running this huge network that was actually feeding back disinformation, misinformation, misleading the Germans at every stage. And the Germans never rumbled Garbo. In fact, at the end of the war, they awarded him the Iron Cross in return uh, for what they perceived as being his loyal duty to the Third Reich. Of course, he'd done nothing of the sort. Um, He he had bamboozled them at every stage. So Garbo is, in a way, um, the most important, perhaps, of them. Then there was Tricycle, Dusko Popov, who was a Serbian good-time boy who, who had kind of wormed his way into German confidence, but worked for Britain loyally throughout the war. My own favourite was codenamed Bronx. She went by the unimprovable name of Elvira de la Fuente Chaudoir, and she was a, um, a bisexual Peruvian playgirl and gambler who was picked up by MI6 pretty early on in the war and sort of fed back into unoccupied France deliberately in order to get recruited by German intelligence, which she was. Um, And she also sent radio messages and secret ink messages throughout the war, which had an important effect on the deployment of German troops at D-Day. The point of the D-Day deception, codenamed Operation Fortitude, was to try to persuade the Germans that instead of landing at Normandy, the vast armada being assembled on the south coast of Britain was aiming for Calais. Calais was the obvious target. Calais was closest to to the Kent coast. It was an incredibly important fortified port. It was a deep water port. It was the obvious place to make a landing. And so they were trying to persuade the Germans that the obvious landing point 
was going to be the landing point, whereas, in fact, of course, the unobvious landing point was going to be the landing point, which was Normandy. Um, and they went to an enormous amount of effort to do this, including sort of creating an entire fake army on the south coast of Kent. And these five agents were absolutely pivotal to that operation. They were there absolutely front and centre, persuading Hitler that what he believed to be the case was actually the case, and it wasn't. And we know that the German response to Normandy was to delay. Quite a considerable time later, they still believed there was going to be an attack in Calais that never happened. And it slowed down the German response. It slowed down the movement of the Panzer Division for a critical period. And without Treasure, Tricycle, Brutus, Bronx and Garbo, it might have been a very, very different story. Now, clearly, these were very skilled deceptions. And one of the things that comes out in Double Cross and also Operation Mincemeat is how the British were feeding the Germans what they wanted to hear, wrapped up in very imaginative schemes. The people working within the espionage system in Britain were some of the most creative minds of the Second World War, including Ian Fleming, who helped co-write the Trout Memorandum, which led to Operation Mincemeat. Well, that's right. I mean, it was one of Churchill's great inspirations, really, was to realise that in order to run this kind of thing, you needed what he called corkscrew minds, you know, people who could sort of see around corners and, and didn't think in conventional ways. And that, of course, gave a particular flavour to, to deception and, and intelligence operations of the Second World War. And it, they really did attract some very flamboyant and some very odd people indeed. You're absolutely right that deception, in a way, relies on trying to persuade someone that what they already believe or want to believe is true. It, it's much harder to convince someone that what they believe is wrong, particularly when you're dealing with a very hierarchical system, as you were with the German high command, a system really where the boss, notably Hitler, said what he believed, and intelligence was really deployed often to bolster those beliefs. And again, thanks partly to Bletchley Park, British intelligence had a pretty good insight into what the German high command already believed to be the case and could frame their deceptions around that. And, and Fleming, Ian Fleming, was front and centre to a lot of this stuff because Fleming worked in, in naval intelligence. He, he worked for a man called Admiral John Godfrey, who was the head of naval intelligence, um, who would actually become the model for M in the James Bond stories. But they liaised very closely, not only with other branches of British intelligence, but with American intelligence as well. So Fleming was, was absolutely central to all of this. And he very early on in the war, he and Godfrey produced, as you mentioned it, something called the Trout Memo, which was a list of very kind of extravagant and imaginative ideas uh, of ways to try and fool the enemy. And some of them were completely bonkers, but some of them had the germ of sort of very clever ideas inside them. And some of them actually would go on to form the basis of plots for James Bond stories when Fleming finally took up writing fiction after the war. So it had an extraordinary impact, this memo. And anybody who wants to dig further into that can read your book about Ian Fleming, For Your Eyes Only, that really argues that pretty much everything he wrote in those 007 novels was based in some kind of fact or experience from his service within naval intelligence during the Second World War. That's absolutely right. I mean, that book, I was sort of trying to work out where 
the facts of Ian Fleming's experience ended and where the fiction began. And what was so fascinating was that everything melded together, everything that he'd experienced during the war. And he was a sort of frustrated warrior in a way, Fleming, because he was so senior in, in naval intelligence. He wasn't allowed to be on the front line because if he'd been captured, he knew far too much. So he kind of had to operate from a desk in Whitehall. And he found that very frustrating, I think. But but he sort of poured his imaginative world into his work and that it was sort of in a way the eliding of fact and fiction and, and his own experience and the sort of imaginative world of espionage that kind of I think gives the James Bond stories their kind of resonance really because in the end writing novels and and the work of espionage they're not so very different you know in both cases what you're trying to do is to dream up an imaginative world and persuade others that it is true. And that is the essence of every deception operation. And it's also at the heart of fiction. And I think it's no accident in a way that some of our greatest writers, particularly in the 20th century, have also been spies. I mean, Ian Fleming, but also John le Carré, Graham Greene, Somerset Maugham, John Buchan. These were all people who had been involved in intelligence before they picked up the pen. So, I mean, I think it's quite telling that the first thing Stella Remington, uh, the first woman head of MI5, did on retirement was to become a novelist. So I've often felt there's a novelist in every spy and perhaps a a spy lurking in many novelists. MI5 might have neutralised all the German agents in Britain during the Second World War, but... There was, of course, a nest of spies operating within MI5 and MI6 with Kim Philby at its heart. And your biography of him, A Spy Amongst Friends, uncovers what a duplicitous and actually thoroughly unpleasant man he was. (laughs) Well, that's absolutely true, although I remain rather ambivalent about Kim Philby because, yes, he was a terrible brutal, ruthless deceiver whose duplicity ended in the deaths of hundreds, possibly thousands of people. I mean, he was a ruthless figure, Philby. I mean, from inside MI6, he betrayed every single operation that he knew about operating behind the the, the Iron Curtain. And, and, and the death toll, the butcher's bill, was appalling, and he was completely insouciant about it. He, he never apologised. He maintained he was a soldier to the end. So there was something very unattractive about Philby. And, and the book is really a kind of examination of, of his relationship with a man called Nicholas Elliott, who was his closest friend, really. They joined MI6 pretty much at the same time. They worked for MI6 throughout the war. They worked together during the Cold War. And throughout that time, Kim Philby betrayed his close friend with with absolute ruthlessness. It was a very intimate sort of betrayal, and that's the, the heart of the book. But the other side of Kim Philby was that he was astonishingly charming. He was great fun. He was humorous. He was generous. So that is, in a way, what makes him such an interesting character, I think, is that he was this absolute bastard in lots of ways. But I felt there's something lingeringly irresistible about him really and it was it that was the essence of what he managed to get away with he he could fool you turn you upside down six ways from sunday but nonetheless he was at heart he was a ruthless tough ideologue who was prepared to sacrifice anybody and anything including those people around him in the service of an ideal an ideal that i don't think he really believed in i, I think to begin with philby was a committed young communist at the age of 18 I think eventually, like many spies, he became completely addicted 
to the drug of secrecy. I think he became one of those people that cannot resist the toxic impact of living a double life. And he loved it. He loved being the person who knew more than anybody else and, and belonging to an elite, if you like. I think, I think in a way, one of the keys to the Philby story, and indeed perhaps the key to, to all the, the stories of the Cambridge Five, is that they, they were ideologues to begin with. But I think very soon they became part of an elite secret club. And, you know, so in a way, I think it was Philby's sort of secret exercise of private power was what really made him tick and, and what also makes his life so fascinating. You mentioned the KGB and they, of course, had their own homegrown agents and their own traitors. And you write about two of them in The Spy and the Traitor, which is a portrait of the Russian double agent Oleg Gordievsky, and also in Agent Sonia, which is a portrait of Russia's most successful spy. Yes, I mean, in a way, those two stories are an attempt to do the same thing, but from different sides of the mirror. I mean, the Spy and the Traitor is a deliberate title because my spy is your traitor. So there is an ambivalence at the heart of that story. I mean, Oleg Gordievsky is an extraordinary man. I mean, he's still in the safe house here in Britain where he has been effectively uh, a prisoner for, for 35 years. He was a KGB officer who was recruited by MI6 and who for a decade supplied intelligence of the highest quality to the West. It, it's hard to exaggerate just how important this stuff was. Espionage, this sounds like an odd thing to say from somebody who's written about espionage for most of their adult life, but espionage often doesn't make very much difference. You know, you find out what the other side is doing and they know what you're doing and you know what they're doing. And it kind of keeps it oils the wheels of traditional diplomacy, but it doesn't usually strategically affect the outcome of history. Very occasionally it does. And we've talked about a few examples where it did, D-Day, Operation Mincemeat and so on. But Oleg Gordievsky really made a difference. His intelligence was going straight to Downing Street and to the Oval Office. And it was materially changing the way Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher saw the world and how they dealt with the Soviet threat. And so Oleg is is an extraordinary man, really. Uh, and I wrote the book in a way because I don't think he's ever really been given the credit for what he did. And so that's him. But then on the other side of the coin, Agent Sonia, her real name was Ursula Kaczynski, was a Soviet agent who had been recruited by the Soviets very early on uh, in Shanghai. And she spied in Britain for many, many years. And if you had gone to the little village of Great Roll, right, in Oxfordshire uh, in the 1940s, you might have met Mrs. Burton, who was married to a local machinist called Len Burton, who was himself a communist. And by day, she was this perfectly ordinary British housewife, shopping and three children and looking after her family and going to the village fete and attending the church and so on. But actually, she was Agent Sonia. And in the back garden in the privy, she had built a very powerful radio transmitter with which she was passing the blueprints for the atomic bomb to Moscow. And that's not an exaggeration. She had a network of spies within the British atomic weapons program um, that was building the bomb. And, and she was passing it on to Stalin, often to a shopping list drawn up by Stalin himself. Now, that's another example of somebody who fundamentally affected the course of history. Would the Soviets eventually have developed the bomb? Probably. 
Would they have done so without the help of this apparently British housewife uh, in the Cotswolds at such speed? Certainly not. I mean, she and her spies, particularly a man called Klaus Fuchs, um, who was a prodigiously talented physicist within the British system, uh, and she was passing his intelligence straight on to Moscow. And uh, she believed that she was hastening the revolution in Britain and that that would be good for Britain. So, you know, like all true believers, she was someone who had absolutely no doubt about her own moral rectitude. But again, a little like Kim Philby, she was also a very attractive character. She was great fun, you know, unlike most sort of didactic communists. And writing that book, I thoroughly enjoyed her company. Now, you not only wrote it, but as with The Spy and the Traitor and Colditz, you narrated the audiobook version yourself. And you've also bought documentary versions of at least five of your books to the small screen on the BBC. You clearly love storytelling in all its forms. Was it always your intention to narrate the audiobook versions if you could? Well, it, that's such an interesting question, because I didn't narrate the early ones. Um, professional actors did them. And then I was asked to do the SAS book, actually, about, about the, the sort of secret history of the wartime SAS called Rogue Heroes. And I so loved that. I so enjoyed the process of, in a way, sort of dramatising your own language. And it, it, it allows one to sort of see one's own writing in a very different way. It's quite an exhausting process, I found. You know, it's at least a week in a recording studio and and the, the, the technicians are so brilliant the tiniest stumble the tiniest hesitation is picked up and you sort of have to keep doing it again and again but it gives for me I find it just it's a wonderful way of sort of seeing the way that you write from a slightly different prism really and it's and I've, I've always loved doing the documentaries you know what's what's not to like about jumping out of airplanes and driving tanks around in the North African desert I mean that's always great fun um, but again it gives one a, a way of looking again at these stories. And, and, and I suppose they're, in a way, they're three different sorts of storytelling, aren't they? You know, there is the book itself, then there is the pleasure and the sort of drama of being able to read that aloud to people. And then there is the next iteration, which is to sort of semi-reenact these things in a documentary way. And now, astonishingly, quite a lot of these books are now being made into sort of screen versions. You, you mentioned Operation Mincemeat, which is now a film with Colin Firth and Matthew McFadden and the brilliant Kelly MacDonald. And, and that's wonderful to see one's words turned onto the screen. So these stories have a way of being told and retold in different forms that, that I find absolutely thrilling. And it's so wonderful to see someone else's imagination applied to a story that you are completely steeped in. You mentioned Mincemeat, and many of us have seen the feature film, which is absolutely terrific. You took a story that had already been written about and made into a 1956 film, The Man Who Never Was, of how the British dropped a body with fake documents just off the coast of Spain and convinced Nazi high command that the attack on Italy would take place through Sardinia rather than Sicily. And the new information that you uncovered was very much to, to humanise that, to show a portrait of Ewan Montague, the intelligence officer who was in charge of the day-to-day -day running of that misdirection. And you hinted at an attraction between him and one of the MI5 secretaries, Gene Leslie, in the film that is turned into a love triangle with the head of the Double Cross Committee, Charles Chumley. How do you feel 
when your painstaking history is dramatized to an extent where fact is being rewritten? I mean, I'll be absolutely honest with you, Red. I love it. I really don't have a problem with it at all because it's a different form. You know, when you're making a film, you've got 90 minutes and you have to create an emotional core. And a brilliant filmmaker like John Madden can do that. I think it gives the film this wonderful sort of romantic energy. It's not meant to be a documentary. There's an imagined reality that is taking place within the context of a true story. And I think... The purists who say, whoa, it's terrible, you know, this is slightly departed, you know, it was a Tuesday, it wasn't a Thursday. By this point, who cares? Because you're not trying to give a factual account. That would be a documentary, it wouldn't be a film. And so I was I was very happy with it. And, and there is enough evidence to suggest that there is somewhere between a possibility and a probability that you and Montague did have a relationship with Jean Leslie. Now, I knew Jean Leslie uh, in her older years. In fact, I took her... Uh, when she was in her 80s, down to the spot on the Thames where this famous photograph was taken, which was put in the dead man's wallet. And she was wonderful, Jean. She was tremendously sort of flirty and fun at 85. And I said, come on, Jean, you know, tell me, did, did you and you and have a thing, as they say? And she just giggled at me. I mean, she said, oh, I'm not talking about that anymore. And it left me with the absolutely profound impression that she had had an affair, but she wasn't going to say yes or no. And I, I write about that in the book. So, you know, and John brilliantly has taken that and created a kind of emotional core to the film. And I, I think that's absolutely fine. In fact, delighted that he did that. You know, you can't be too precious about these things. There is a factual account. And if people want to know what really happened, go and buy the book. But of course, you know, what is factual and what is true and what is not is is often going to be debated. And and in a way, this takes us back to, to Colditz, because you rightly said, yes, the story of Colditz, people think they know, just in the same way that people think they knew the story of The Man Who Never Was, which became a film in 1956. And Ewan Montague wrote his own book about it. But of course, that version of truth was not the whole truth. The book that you and Montague wrote after the war, parts of it were deliberately deceptive. He, for his own reasons and for legal reasons, covered up quite a lot of what actually happened. And the same is in a way true of the Colditz story. The version that we got after the war was a version that sort of in a way was partly propaganda. It was partly a way of sort of convincing us that the war had been a, a moral crusade in black and white. But of course... Life isn't written in black and white. Life is full of colour. And I think one of the lovely things about being able to address these stories that sit in the heart of our national mythology is that if you have the right amount of material, and, and luckily there is an astonishing amount of material on this sort of thing, you can put the colour back into these stories. And that's that's really, in a way, what I try to do. Well... I would love to ask you what you're working on at the moment. I suspect it might be hush-hush, but time is running out and I want to unearth the secrets in your own library, which we will do just after the break. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where it's time to hear the books of Ben McIntyre's life. 
So, Ben, was there a book that you read as a youth that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? The, the book that really got me going was not about spying. It was not about espionage. It was not about the war. It was In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, which really was, for me anyway, the first non-fiction novel that I'd ever read. That book seemed to open up to me the possibility of taking a true story and telling it in a way that read like and felt like and moved like a novel. At every stage during that book, and I must have read it when I was about 12 and then reread it many, many times. It's a murder story. It's a murder mystery, really. At every stage, you, you're sort of pinching yourself to think, my God, this is actually true. This really happened. And, and Capote had got such a depth of, of information and, and sort of factual evidence before he even started writing the book, but then wrote it with a kind of a novelist sensibility. And I thought, God, that is that is extraordinary. If you can do that, then... And that's really what I've always tried to do, is to tell stories that are... Every word of them is true. You know, if I say the sky was blue and there were chrysanthemums blooming in the garden, that's because I know that to be the case. And yet I love it when people say... I love it when I'm challenged on it, even when people say, how do you, how do you know that? How do you know that was the case? And, and, and I hope I can always say, well, it's there in the evidence. People do write about their lives in a way that is very imaginative. And of course, you're having to take them on trust a lot of the time. You know, you and Montague's uh, memoir is a very good example, you know, partly fictitious. But when it works, I, I have Truman Capote sitting on my shoulder saying, gosh, every word of that, really? That reads like a novel, but it's true. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? OK, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, rather naughtily, I'm going to say, yeah, there's a whole set of them. And they're mostly written by John le Carre. On a rainy day, I can go to almost any of them and pluck them out of the bookshelf and, and feel a little thrill of inspiration from him because he was he was a friend of mine but uh, and he... He was very instrumental in, in my writing life and his ability to sort of delve into the psychology of the secret world is, is another of the spurs that, that keeps me going. So I've got a whole shelf of them um, and that's, that's where I go when I, when I want some sort of quiet time with my muse. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? I, I read less fiction than I used to. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of William Boyd and Robert Harris and those kinds of novelists, but I was very impressed. And it's not a book for a rainy day because it's a chest crusher, but The Diaries of Chips Channon, um, which I reviewed for The Times, is an extraordinary book, actually, because although Channon himself is such an unattractive character in lots of ways, he's also very honest and he's keyed into a British world, sort of pre-war and post-war, that is absolutely extraordinary. And his level of insight um, it's edited by Simon Heffer. It's in three vast volumes. It's not one that you'd pick up lightly. But for dipping in and out and getting a flavour of that world, every historian of, of the 20th century probably needs to have Chips Channon, the ghastly, fascinating Chips Channon on their bookshelf. Chips Channon was a, an MP, uh, an American, and a, a wealthy man who was plugged into the British establishment like no other in the 30s and 40s. And 50s, in fact. And he, he was completely ruthless in exposing the frailties and foibles and secrets of his friends. So he has that excellent quality in a diarist that he's totally disloyal. Ben McIntyre, thank you so much for sharing your 
passion for reading with the listeners and also giving us further insight into your fantastic historical espionage books. It's been a great pleasure, Red. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks again to my guest, Ben McIntyre, and to the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode. So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.